So good to be together, River West. Great to see you. Invite you to be seated. I woke up this morning and for the first time I felt the changing of the seasons. Do you feel that? From summer to fall. Yes. Yeah, the air is a little bit more crisp and the leaves are turning and kids go back to school tomorrow. Hallelujah. Yes. Yeah. It's the little things that we praise God about, but anyway. And, uh, but there's one thing that never changes, and that is we open our Bible and we get in the Word, and we're going to do that today. Will you pull out your Bible, open it to the book of Psalms. If you're new or you're a visitor, welcome to River West. We're great to have you and uh, glad to have you. And we're doing this series where we're working through the Psalms. We're learning how to pray, all right? So we're taking Psalms, and we're learning how to take those individual Psalms, take the language of those Psalms, go into the room, get in God's presence, and take all that rich language and bring it before God to enhance our prayer life. And one of the things we're learning is that the Psalms, if you start praying through the Psalms, you're going to start saying things to God that you've never said before, at least not to the depth or to the extent that the Psalms say them, so it will enhance your life. Today we come to one of the most famous Psalms in the whole book, Psalm 51. Will you turn there with me? And while you're turning, I'm going to share with you something you're going to need to know today in order to understand this Psalm. Think about this. The biblical word mercy means to have a deep feeling of compassion towards someone who deserves to be punished. Let me say that one more time. That's a big statement, so let me say that again. The biblical word mercy means to have a deep feeling of compassion towards someone who actually deserves punishment. Parents, we know this feeling. Uh, your, your kids blow it, they come, they do something dumb, and you know you should punish them, but you just look at them and you just start to feel this emotion and you just can't bring yourself to do it, right? I remember Bridget was three years old. She came down the steps one morning. I was drinking a cup of coffee and she had in her hand a bunch of permanent markers and none of them had lids on them. And she had that look like an artist who's just created a masterpiece. Do you know that look? And I, I looked at her and I was like, Bridget, hey, what's going on, baby? What'd you do this morning, you know? And then suddenly our cat, Penelope, came around the corner, our pristine Himalayan, and she was pink and purple and green. If, if Bridget was the artist, Penelope was the canvas, all right? And she stood back proud of her masterpiece. And I wanted to punish her so bad, but I just couldn't because I felt this feeling of compassion for her, right? Just this deep emotion. That's the word mercy. The word mercy is the word to describe what Joseph experienced in the Old Testament when his brothers came back to see him in Egypt. You know this story? An amazing story. Joseph gets betrayed by his brothers. They, they leave him for dead. They throw him in a pit. He gets sold into slavery. And by God's grace, he ends up in Egypt and he gets elevated to a place of power. Meanwhile, his brothers end up in a famine and they have to flee to Egypt for help in the famine, not realizing that the very person they'll stand before to ask for help is actually their brother, Joseph, who's become powerful. And when the brothers enter the room, they don't even recognize Joseph, but Joseph recognizes them. And there's a moment when his little brother Benjamin steps forward 
And whereas Joseph ought to punish and mete out judgment, he has a moment where he can't compose himself anymore. And the word that the Bible uses to describe what he feels in that moment is the word mercy. The Bible says compassion grew warm in his heart. He had to leave the room and he began to weep. And then he composed himself and he came back. Mercy is a warm, deep feeling. And did you know, and Psalm 51 is going to teach us, that mercy is something that God feels towards you and towards me. Psalm 51 is a psalm about how to talk to God about sin. And David learned how to do that because he came to understand the mercy of God. And he recorded this amazing psalm for us so that you could learn how to talk to God about sin. You see, as you come to understand God's mercy, it's going to free you up the way David was freed up. And you'll begin to say things in God's presence about your sin that you've never said before. Will you look at it with me? Psalm 51. Yesterday, while you're turning there, a brother came to me and he was like, how are you guys choosing which psalms you're preaching on? And I told him, we're picking the psalms that have been the most personally helpful to us in our prayer life. I'm standing up here telling you I'm a brother who had to learn how to talk about sin. And Psalm 51 was a blessing in my life, so I want to share it with you today. Will you look at it with me? To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Just pause right there. Every psalm was written in response to an experience that the psalmist had. And this psalm is no different. And this psalm was written after David had a very dark experience. The story behind this psalm, which we'll look at in a minute, is a gory PG-13 plus story of betrayal, adultery, murder, darkness. So if you're looking at that and thinking after he had gone into Bathsheba, if you say that sounds like it's got sexual undertones, that's because it does. All right. And we'll go to that story later. But here's what happened. David's life got so turned upside down because of his sin that he fleed into God's presence to pray about it. And here's what he said. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. It's amazing that when David starts this psalm, he doesn't talk about the details of what happened. And he could have. The sin was, was intense. The sin was gory. He could have led with all the details. David was like a varsity sinner, all right? Four-year letterman, all state. This guy knew how to sin. And he could have started there, but he did not start there. When David started his prayer after this experience, he began with God. And not just anything about God. He began with a vision of God's mercy. Did you see it there? Have mercy on me, O God. Why? Why would David feel comfortable praying that? Because he knew something. He knew that 
Our God is a God of steadfast love. Do you see it there? Why can I cry out to you? According to your steadfast love. This is the the Hebrew word hesed. It means God's covenant faithfulness, his commitment to love the people that he's made a promise to. But not only that, according to his abundant mercy, there's our word, this deep, warm, compassionate feeling that God feels towards sinners. He felt it towards David. And this morning, he feels it towards you and towards me. And so David was able to come into his presence. And see, David had learned something. He learned something that you and I need to learn today, and that is that mercy is not some abstract concept. Mercy is an emotion. And when God feels mercy, he doesn't feel it in an abstract direction. He feels it towards actual human hearts that have been bound up with sin. Hearts like yours. Hearts like mine. As David cried out to God for mercy, the amazing thing is that David knew the the, the person who's actually doing all of the acting in my life is God himself because of his mercy. Mercy's an emotion, but it's an action word. In his mercy, God has moved in my life. God has done something. Mercy's caused him to act and move and pursue me. And so David was able to turn and say, thank you, God. Thank you for all you've done. It's amazing. Today, what I want to do in the time we have is I want to show you the three things that mercy does. Mercy is an action word. There are three things that God did in David's life, and he's done them in your life, he's done them in my life, and perhaps he wants to do them today. Three things that mercy does. Here's number one. I'll put it on the screen so you can think about this with me. God's first act of mercy is to inflict a wound to the sinner's heart. That's where God begins. And you say, that doesn't sound like mercy to me. What is this? Well, God knows something. He knows that before you can begin to confess your sin, you have to be able to feel your sin. And in order to feel your sin, sometimes you need a little wound. A little wound. And now we're, now we're able to go back and understand the story that's behind this whole psalm. Why did God send Nathan the prophet to David? Let's find out. Will you turn in your Bible to the book of 2 Samuel? Keep your finger in Psalm 51 and turn to the left. You're going to go past Job. You're going to go past a couple books called Chronicles. We'll preach those much later in my life. And then we're going to go past a couple books of Kings, and then you're going to come to the Samuels. There you go. 2 Samuel 11 is where we're going. In the church Bible, it's page 290, all right? For the rest of you, talk amongst yourselves. But anyway, go there. 2 Samuel chapter 11. Here's what happened. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. And it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. 
And David sent and inquired about the woman, and someone said, Is not this Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I'm pregnant. Now I'm going to summarize what happens next because the story is long and you can go back and read it. But So David, in his sin, has created a very messy situation. And what he decides to do next is a critical moment in his life. And what he decides to do next is to try to cover over the sin. So the first part of his plan is that he invites Uriah the Hittite who's gone out to war for him Uriah is a friend and, a, and a, one of his warriors. He invites Uriah home and encourages Uriah to go home and spend time with his wife, hoping that Uriah will be with his wife and he can cover over this pregnancy. But Uriah is such a man of integrity that he refuses to go home and enjoy the comforts of his bed or his home while his brothers and arms are out of battle. So Uriah the Hittite sleeps on the front steps of David's palace every night that he's in Jerusalem. So that doesn't work. <laughs> so then David concocts another plan, and he writes a letter to the captain of his army saying, I want you to put Uriah the Hittite on the front lines and go out in battle so that Uriah the Hittite will be slain. And Uriah does not even realize he's carrying his own death warrant as he goes back into battle. And it, so it happens that he goes out to war on the front lines, and he's killed. And here's what happens next. Pick up in verse 26. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Now, that may be the single greatest understatement in the entire Bible. Okay. And here's the question. What's David going to do next? You know what David's going to do next? David is going to just try to move on with his life. He's just going to try to pretend nothing happened. He's going to take Bathsheba as his wife, and he's going to try to move on. But can David move on from this? You and I know he can. So what does God do? In his mercy, he sends someone to inflict a wound. We look at it. Chapter 12, verse 1. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had many flocks, very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought that ewe lamb up, and it grew up with him, and with his children it used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. It's a little strange to me, but we'll go with it, okay? <laughs> Here's what happened. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and the rich man was unwilling to take 
one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, you are the man. You are the man. And the wound was inflicted. And David broke. And we know he broke, because look at verse 13. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. I've sinned. It's an act of mercy. Because sometimes we live in a broken world and things happen and we think we're going to just move on. But God knows you cannot move on. The early church fathers had a word that they used. It's a word I wish we still used in the church. The word is the word compunction. To describe this feeling when the wound is inflicted. The word compunction, it was a medical word. It was a, it was a word that was used to describe a, a wound that was inflicted by, by the prick of, the, of a thorn or the cutting of a sharp object that would cause healing healing things to begin to flow. Compunction. It's a powerful concept. In the book of Acts, chapter 2, Peter is preaching the very first gospel sermon. He's preaching about Christ. He speaks of Jesus' death and resurrection. And he's preaching to a group of people from Israel who are hard-hearted towards the gospel. And Peter gets to the climax of his sermon, and he says, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And when Peter said this, Luke tells us they were cut to the heart. They were cut, and they broke. And they turned to Peter and said, what should we do? And Peter said, repent and believe upon the name of the Lord Jesus and be baptized. Compunction. You say, how can it be a mercy for God to inflict a wound? Because God knows that you can never confess sin until you've begun to grieve the sin. You will not talk about sin the way you ought to talk about it if you've not felt the sorrow of the sin. And God initiates in mercy sometimes to inflict like a, like a surgeon with precision, that prick of compunction that starts the bright red flow of sorrow. Mercy. In two weeks, I drive my oldest daughter, Lauren, to Seattle Pacific University. She's going to college. Yeah. And I've been so sad about this. It's surprising. I used to make fun of people who got sad for sending their kids to college. And now here I am. And I've been so, and I've tried to figure out why am I, am I feeling all this emotion? So I was on my retreat and I was praying about it and I, God took me to another level. Some of my sadness is the normal stuff of, you know, I love her. She's my daughter. I love her. And we have routines that we've developed in our lives. We have breakfast together every day and we just have such a great time. And so I'm sad about that. But there's another thing going on under there. 
And I realized what it is. It's remorse over my failure as a father. Moments when I blew it. Dad, you feel me on this? No? Okay, thank you. I'm... <laughs> thank you. You can talk back to me today. I need it. All right, I'm up here. I realized I have all these moments where I blew it. I remember one time Lauren when she was six years old, just a precious little angel coming through the kitchen and I was agitated and I'd had a long day and she did something that annoyed me and I remember I got big and I raised my voice and I got kind of gruff with her and she looked up with me and she looked at me and she had this face that was like, I'm afraid of you. And you know what happened in that moment? My heart broke. It was compunction. And I, I went into my room and I prayed, confessed my sin, but then I grabbed Lauren and I took her and I said, Lauren, I put her on my knee and I said, Dad blew it. Will you forgive me? That was wrong, you know. Can I suggest something? If you get to a place in your life where you feel a, a cut and you begin to feel emotion and sorrow about sin in your life, can I humbly suggest that God has just visited you with his mercy? And you take your Bible and you go into your room with Psalm 51 and you fall on your knees and you say, thank you, God. Thank you for mercy. That's the first thing that mercy does. Here's the second thing that mercy does. And it's just as important. God's, second, God's first act of mercy is to inflict the wound. And here's his second act of mercy. It's to bring us face to face with the full reality of our sin. You know, these are strange mercies. Okay, but bear with me. This is important. So will you look at Psalm 51, verses 3 to 5. This is where David now gives us the most comprehensive theology of sin in the entire Bible. Every verse is important. We're going to walk through each one. God wants David to fully face sin. And so here's what he prayed. Verse 3, he said, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. David is saying, it's like I cannot take my eyes now off of what happened, Lord. I have a picture of God with his hands on David's cheeks, and he's saying, you've, you've got to look at this. You have to look head on at this. Even if there's a part of you that wants to look away, I need you to see it. It's kind of like that moment when you drive past an accident on the freeway. You know that moment where such rubbernecks are like, I got to look at this. What happened? That's what's happening in this moment. Last year, Kathy and I were driving out of the parking lot of the church on a really rainy night. We came down this street. Right over here, there's a blind corner, and we watched a gentleman look our direction, but he didn't look the other way, and he pulled out, and someone coming 45 miles an hour slammed on his brakes. And it was like, you know when you go into slow motion? And that was what we, we watched in slow motion as this gentleman just got T-boned. And it was like, I would have done anything to look away. This is, what, this is what David is experiencing. He's like, God is asking me, look head on. You have to see this. Why is that mercy? It's mercy because so often in a fallen world, when we're dealing with sin, we tend to only look at the parts of sin that are tempting and fun. But we don't stick around long enough to see the end of it all. 
At the beginning, when David was on his deck and he looked down, Bathsheba was beautiful. But at the end, after he had walked headlong into his sin, he had left a trail of dead bodies. And God said, because I love you, I need you to look at this so you'll remember. You'll remember. So powerful. Then David says, verse 4, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. You just look at that, look at that phrase one more time. This is very profound. Against you, you only have I sinned. Now the reader is going, well, wait a minute. You murdered Uriah and you got his wife pregnant. So seems like there were some other people involved in this, right? But here's what's happening. David is actually teaching us the biblical way to talk about sin in prayer. And what he's saying is, although sin often impacts others, it always begins somewhere else. It always begins in my relationship with God. That's where it starts, always. Sin is a theological concept about me and God. So David uses these three words to describe sin. All the big words are here in this psalm. If you look at the end of verses 1 and 2, you'll notice three words in your Bible there. Do you see the word transgressions, iniquity, and sin? And though those words get repeated over and over in the psalm, David's saying, I'm going to show you every word to describe what I'm talking about. All three of those words, transgressions, iniquity, sin, they're all describing something that happens in my relationship with God first. So the word transgressions just means rebellion. It means a refusal, uh, a refusal to acknowledge or honor God's word. Picture it like a clenched fist against God's standard. That's transgression. There's like a stubbornness to it. And then the word iniquity means a perversion or a twisting. It means here's the, here's the straight line of God's standard and law, but I'm going to twist it how I want and, and go the direction I want. And then the word sin, which is the most common word, that's from the world of sport. Many, many have heard that's this idea of missing the mark or falling short of the standard. And you take all those together and you realize David's saying, I get it, Lord. Sin is about, it's about me and you. It starts here. When God broke David's heart, the first thing out of his mouth was, Nathan, I've sinned against God. I've sinned against Yahweh. And he felt something deep. Is that how you pray about your sin in God's presence? And then finally, verse five. This is such a great verse. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Just hover over those words for a minute. David was like, this is, this is something deep. This is inner. David is, what he's saying there is he's saying, sin is not just something I do. Sin is something I am. It's not just an external thing. Sin starts in here. So David talks about sin in a way that we never do. Whereas we try to minimize it or, or, or explain it away, David maximizes it and says, it's me. David never says, I can tell you why I did this. I'll give you the logic for my behavior. We do that all the time, right? In our relationships, when we, when we lose it or do something out of control, we'll say, well, you, you made me do that, right? 
You, if you hadn't done this, I wouldn't have done that. I do this all the time in my life, you know? It's Monday in the life of a pastor, a hypothetical pastor. His name will go un, unmentioned. It's Monday, and that pastor, that hypothetical pastor is tired because it's been a long week of ministry, right? And that pastor's wife, whose name will go unmentioned, she really wants to spend time with that pastor who's tired, and she wants to do yard work <laughs> with him. This is hypothetical, okay? Don't judge. And so she comes and let's, let's do a yard project. And he's like, oh, I don't want to, I'm tired. And she's like, why are you so crabby? And then he says, because you keep asking me about yard work, right? And he blames it on her, right? And we do that, don't we? We do that. We explain it away. We say it's, it's out here. But here's what David does. David comes into God's presence and David says, I'm not angry because of this, that, or the other God, I'm just angry. I'm not selfish because of this, that, or the other. God, I'm just selfish. And that's how you pray. That's how you talk to God about sin. And you know what's amazing about it? Is that that journey is actually a journey to joy. So like I have this picture in my head of someone who's walking through life and they're being held down by massive bags of sand, just hanging from their shoulders and their limbs, and they're, and they're just trying to make it through life. And that sand represents sin that you've never talked to God about. And it's just hampering you. And maybe it's something from your past. It's 10 years old or something, and, and you've told yourself, I can just move on. That's okay. But you can never move on. You've got to talk to God about it. And what happens, what happens to David is he begins to talk about sin the way the Bible talks about sin, not minimizing, not blame shifting, not saying it happened because of this over here or it wasn't that big of a deal, but actually saying, I need to look at it, God. It's ugly and real, and I need to own it. 100% for me, what happens is that you begin to leave it behind and you let go. And I have this picture of those bags of sand falling off and that person floating because they're lighter than air. And I don't know, maybe, maybe I'm describing someone this morning who's here. Maybe that's you. But I can tell you this. If you begin to pray Psalm 51 you could experience that kind of joy. Amen? Amen. And here's the last thing I want to say, is that the only way you can experience what David is talking about is, is if you come to understand something about Jesus. And so here's the third and final thing that mercy does. God's final act of mercy is to transform our hearts through the power of the gospel. There it is. First, God inflicts the wound because he loves us. And you feel the sorrow. Then God makes us look head on at the sin. And then finally, God does a miracle of transformation through Jesus Christ. Will you look at it with me? Psalm 51, verses 7 to 12. This is my favorite part of the psalm. You're going to recognize it. So many of our worship songs come from here. Here's what David prayed. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. 
Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. It's so beautiful. You know what David's doing here? David is saying, now God, I want to pray to you about our, rela- our relationship. I want our relationship to be right again because my sin has wrecked it. And so he prays. And he prays for forgiveness, yes, but, but he prays for something more than just forgiveness. David says, God, I need you to do more than just purge me and clean me and make me whiter than snow. I need all of that. My sin is ugly, but then I need something else. I need you to do something deeper than that. If I need you to do a miracle in my heart. If you don't change my heart, I'll just go right back to what I was doing before. And so I need you to create in me a clean heart. It's a miracle. That word create in the Hebrew is reserved for God when he created the heavens and the earth. This is like Genesis 1, 1 create. And David is saying, God, I need you to do something in me that only you can do a miracle where my heart is made new and you fill me with your spirit and my desires begin to change and my affections begin to change and I become a new person transformed. It's amazing. David says, God, I need your Holy Spirit, a willing spirit so that I'll follow you. My life will change. David is praying about something that God will fulfill at a perfect moment in time when he sends his son, Jesus Christ, into the world to pay for human sin and rise again. It's a miracle. It's the miracle of the gospel. It's the kind of heart change that can only happen to a person who has heard the gospel and believed Jesus paid for my sins. And as you believe that, something happens in your heart that's miraculous. Can I show you one other passage that you could pray with Psalm 51? It's in Ezekiel 36. Go there, we'll end there, and then we'll go to the the Lord's table. Ezekiel 36, verse 25, takes all of the language of Psalm 51, and and it restates it in two verses. And all of it looks forward to the gospel of Jesus. You could pray Ezekiel 36 along with Psalm 51, which I would recommend. And here's what the prophet Ezekiel, he quotes God who says, verse 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from your, all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove your heart of stone." And I'll give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. And do you hear all the common language from Psalm 51? God pouring out his spirit. 
God changing your desires, God cleansing you. But right in the middle of it is the miracle of the gospel where God actually, in his grace, because of the death and resurrection of his son Jesus, he reaches into the center of your soul and he removes the heart of stone, the heart that's clenched towards God. He inflicts a wound that causes the sorrow to flow and he replaces that heart of stone with a heart of flesh that beats for God and loves God and wants to know God. And if you love Jesus and if you've been saved, that miracle happened in your life. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Are we awake? Anyone on the hood to coast here? Come on now. Get with me. That happened to you. You have a heart of flesh that loves God and God wants to fan that into flame as you pray and seek him. But it's very possible that some who have come today who are realizing, I need that right now. I, my heart is that heart of stone that Ezekiel described. Oh God, please, will you, will you transform me? Do you know what? If you're feeling that, you're already almost all the way there. God is doing a work in your life. Hallelujah. You're on your way to becoming a Christian. And I'm going to pray about that in just a moment. But this morning, we're going to go to the table. And here's what I want you to think about this morning. You're going to come and you're going to get the, the bread and you're going to get the cup and you're going to return to your seat. And the last thing that we need to experience today is a recognition of how much this miracle cost Jesus. It cost him everything. David said, God, hide your face from my sins. Well, God answered that prayer by hiding his face from his one and only son, Jesus Christ, who became the sin bearer. David says, purge me with hyssop. God answered that prayer by purging his one and only son who became sin for us so that we could have his righteousness. David said, cast me not away from your presence, Lord. And God answered that prayer by casting away his son who became the sacrificial lamb who carried away the sin of the world so that we could go free and have right relationship with God. It cost Jesus everything. And that's what we remember when we take communion. We thank God, we celebrate, we put our faith in Jesus. We're going to do that this morning together as we worship. Will you bow your heads with me and I'll invite the worship team to come. Well, Father, we want to thank you for this psalm. Pray that you would remind us today to use this, this week. May we not forget what we've heard, what we've experienced in your word, but may we take David's experience and David's poetry, and God, would you help us to use it this week so that we could begin to talk to you about sin that way. celebrating the truth of Christ, the beauty of the gospel, and walking in newfound freedom, God, because you've done this miracle of new creation. We're new creatures in Christ. The old is gone. Behold, the new has come.
And so we thank you for it, Lord. And we love you and we worship you today. Pray these things together in Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen. Amen.